Hey folks, a few quick announcements before we get to the episode. First, I'll be appearing on the next episode of Rank and Vile, where I'll be talking about one of my favorite horror movies, 28 Days Later, with host Ryan Boyd. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because Ryan composed this show's theme music, Paper Wings. That episode will be going up on Rank and Vile's Patreon this Saturday, October 17th, and then in the public feed sometime next week. So if you're into that ghoul shit, check it out. You can find their Patreon at patreon.com slash rankandvile. Second, I'll also be appearing on Story Hour, along with Laura Perlman, this coming Wednesday, October 21st, streaming live on Facebook and Zoom. That starts at 7 p.m. Pacific time, and a recording will be available for folks who are listening to this in the future. You can find links and more information at storyhour2020, that's 2020.com. Now, on with the show. Warning. This episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. from the trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniecks. On today's episode, I'm very pleased and excited to welcome uh, podcaster extraordinaire, <laughs> one of the members of the Serpent Cast crew, Jennifer Mace. Macy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. I'm, I'm on a very small Pokemon quest to collect <laughs> all of the serpents. Well, uh, you, you, and, you and some other folks. Yeah. <laughs> However, I'm two-thirds of the way there at this point. You I just are. need to get Freya. You just need to catch the Australian, um, which, you know, yeah. jokes about kangaroos and duffel bags insert here. Perfect. <laughs> something something emu war? There's a thing where if you put a duffel bag in front of a kangaroo, it will just fall over into it. Amazing. Because pouches. That makes sense. <laughs> That's please fantastic. Do not, darling listeners, please do not try this on Freya, because she will find out it was me, and she will hurt me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, we have one, I think, one listener in Australia, according to my podcast dashboard, and I don't think it's Freya, because I think it's from the wrong side of Australia, but I can't be certain. Who knows? So, Macy, you're going to be reading to us from Hagstone, is that correct? Yes, I am going to be reading from my late and much-lamented YA debut that wasn't. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, of which we have heard... I, I feel like we've heard many things about it on Serpentcast, but I may just be conflating that with Slack. Ah, uh, you may be, um, but mostly these days I've been talking more about Catalyst, because... Uh, Hagstone's been trunked since 2018 or so. Oh, that's right. So... Yeah, time is fake. Time so is fake. So who knows? What year is it? We, we are coming to you now, dear listeners, from <laughs> the Fire Zone. It, it is the Fire Zone. We, uh, we scheduled this recording around 
competing heat waves on the West Coast, mm-hmm. and right now the air outside of our houses is unbreathable. It's, yeah, it's very night veily right now. We're all good. Yeah. So I thought that I would uh, take a break and bring us to some cold, healthy winter fog in Scotland. Excellent. So. All right. Uh, is there anything that we need to know before you bring us into this? Hmm, I suppose I will be reading a scene from chapter four of Hagstone in which our teenage protagonist has found herself in a new city attending a new school and everything is confusing and distressing. That's probably all we really need. That's a mood. That's a mood. That is a mood. It's a very familiar mood from my childhood, at least. (sighs) (sighs) All right. All right. So, Hagstone, chapter four. Twenty minutes after last bell, Louise still hadn't shown up to guide Becca back to the house. Sunset was closing in, hungry for the long winter night, and even in hat and coat, Becca was hard-pressed not to shiver as she waited near the school gates. The day had dragged on and on in a haze of unfamiliar faces and mingling not-right smells. All she wanted was to find some place quiet and curl up under a blanket for an hour or ten. Eating lunch had cleared her shakiness a little, but her head felt too heavy and she couldn't keep her eyes in focus. She needed this day to be over. She'd mostly been watching when they drove in. (laughs) It couldn't be that hard to find her way. Stepping away from the wall, Becca let the ebbing tide of students sweep her out into the street, nudging her way through the snarls of lines for the last few buses. The sun hadn't put in an appearance since lunchtime, but the clouds overhead were pink as salmon near the rooftops. She folded her plait into her collar and buttoned her coat against the wind. As she walked, the other students slipped away, breaking off down side streets and slipping through shadowed doorways until Becca found herself walking alone. Fog clung and drifted around her knees, thick as a sea-har five miles inland from where it should be. She didn't recognise this street. The pavement was black slate, grimy and part cracked, and the stone walls of terraced houses had fallen away into iron fencing strangled by ragged winter brambles. From somewhere out in the fog, a crow cawed, mournful as a toad. Hmm. Uncertain, Becca's steps faltered to a stop. She'd gone astray somehow. This wasn't where she was meant to be. The crow croaked again, louder, nearer. Up ahead, a streetlight's neon glow had burned away a puddle of clarity in the haze and the bird's black feathers almost faded into the slate below. Almost, but not quite. The crow was holding its wing strangely. Becca took a step forwards and another, hands outstretched, making soothing, clicking noises with her tongue. It tried to mantle at her, only to flinch and croak again in pain. Its left wing was definitely broken. For a bird as big as that, unable to fly or hide, it'd either starve in this cold or get eaten by a cat or a fox. She couldn't just leave it like that. But it was wild. For each step Becca took, The crow hopped back as far, 
quickly vanishing into a break in the cast-iron fence. It wasn't a fence at all, Becca discovered, hurrying across the pavement. It was a railing. For the first time, she realised the rushing shush she'd been hearing wasn't traffic at all. A stream surged beneath the street, deep and murky brown in the failing light. It looked viciously fast, the kind of water that would batter your legs until you slipped and it could swallow you whole. Becca gulped. She couldn't see the bird anymore, but she could hear it, creaking and distressed. There was a footpath, a narrow, muddy slip of a thing clogged with brittle blackberry thorns and last autumn's rotting leaves. Spindly, rattling rowan and elder shrouded the depths from the sky. She didn't have to go after it. No one would blame her for not trying. No one would even know. But she would. Annoyed, tired, feet aching, Becca shrugged off her backpack and jammed it behind the lamp's pedestal where it would be hard to see. She hesitated, then tugged off her scarf as well, shoving it into the bag. She didn't want it ripped as well as stained, after all. Somehow, miraculously, she managed not to slip, her school-appropriate black flats less than useless as she slid her way down the muck. The stream grew even louder as she reached its crumbling bank, so clogged with dirt that she couldn't tell how deep it was. Becca snagged a dead leaf from the tree she'd been clinging to and threw it down into the water, which yanked it away beneath the street in seconds. Where was the crow hiding? She couldn't even hear it any more. If it had gone under the bridge, she was giving up. That stone tunnel was pitch black and low, barely a metre high over the rushing centre of the stream. She stepped closer and crouched, one hand braced on the slimy stone to keep herself out of the mud. Up close, the roar of water obscured all other noise, insulating Becca in a bubble away from city sounds. She couldn't see more than a foot into the depths. She leaned closer, and then, from nowhere, a flapping black blur shot out of the darkness, startling Becca back. Unable to keep her footing, she fell, furious and resigned to the cold muck seeping into the back of her coat. Hmm. Somewhere upstream, a voice began to laugh. Down in the wet dirt, gloves shoved finger-deep into the leaf mulch, breath jarred loose from the fall, Becca spared a single, long moment to consider just bursting into tears. But no, there'd been enough of that. Instead, she lurched to her feet again, jagged spikes of humiliated anger tearing at the fog of her helplessness. What? Becca started turning towards the laughter, and then her jaw fell open. It Mm -hmm. was the woman, from the cliffs. The same tangled grey-black hair, that craggy face, those piercing eyes, and a black crow perched on her shoulder, preening her hair with its beak. Its Mm -hmm. wings were both folded neatly against its back. Becca squinted at it. The bird tilted its head, glossy black eye peering straight back at her. 
You can't blame me for laughing, the woman said, stepping closer to the glimmer of streetlights from above and breaking Becker's staring contest. That wasn't he exactly elegant. Becker straightened slowly, brushing the worst of the mess from her gloves and glanced quickly behind her. There was the path, steep and slippery. She could run. Why did it feel like she should run? Now you don't worry there, the woman said, one hand outstretched like Becker's dar, soothing a nervous animal. I've an offer for you, if you'll hear it. Becca's throat clicked when she swallowed. No, thank you, she said. <laughs> it happens that I seem to have mislaid a few items, the woman went on, blithely ignoring Becca's rejection. <laughs> and being as the world is as it is, I can't put my feet where they might be. That's where you come in. Did... Was, was that your crow? Becca asked. Uh, who are you? Are you following me? It was slowly dawning on her that she should probably be really, really frightened. From the street, she hadn't even known the stream was down here. With the fog above and the rush of water to her right, no one could hear a word they said. Not even if she screamed. The woman tutted dismissively. You can call me the Hag of the Hills if you want, she said. And it was a fair epithet, if cruel. Becca could remember mm. thinking, the first time she'd seen her, that this woman was younger than Aunt Jane. But she couldn't imagine why she would have thought that now. The woman's face was a cartography of cliffs and valleys. Now, I can linger, and so I'll say it plain. Three things he's taken from me, this city has. Find them, and I'll grant you your bitterest hunger and need. And that's not an offer to sneer at. This was a joke. A prank of some kind. But no, the woman looked serious. Her brows drawn down over those storm-grey eyes Becca could barely meet. She believed what she was saying. The mud was slippery. The stream was dangerously fast and she didn't know how deep it ran. It was safer to play along. There was nothing to say she had to follow through. What, what am I looking for then? Becca asked, wrapping her arms around herself in the cold. Where are they? The woman, the hag if that's what she wanted to be called, although even in her head Becca had a hard time using an insult as a name, moved forwards, <laughs> peering up into Becca's face as she struggled not to flinch away. The crow on the woman's shoulder ruffled its feathers, annoyed at the movement, and opened its beak to caw. Without looking, quick as a snake, the hag reached up and pinched the bird's beak shut. Och, you don't believe, but it doesn't matter, she said, ignoring the bird's flapping displeasure. It's my ring I'll be wanting first, and if I could tell you where, what would I need you for, lass? Just as well send this one for it, couldn't I? She shrugged one shoulder, and the bird wrenched itself free, launching into the night, cawing fit to wake the dead. The hag's <laughs> laughter chased it up and out of sight. Oh, I spoil him, I do. She frowned, mood shifting quick as the Scottish weather. All petals under snore, that's all I have for you, hamstrung as I am. 
When you find it, put it outside your window and that one will bring it to me. Implying she knew where Becca lived. I'll do that, Becca said, glancing back behind her. I'll try to find your ring. The hag looked at her for a long weighing moment. I'm not joking around, she said. But you'll see when you see, lass, and I canna make it happen. She nodded, brisk as any shopkeeper, and turned to walk away. Becca didn't waste a second. By the time she'd scrambled back up and around the cast-iron bridge rail, the hag had vanished into the dark scrubland below. Becca yanked free her backpack and ran. So, one lovely, lovely, lovely (laughs) atmosphere for an October day. It did seem like an appropriate uh, pre-Halloween reading. Yes. Uh, And two, while I had known that this was set in Scotland, I hadn't put together in my head, oh yes, Macy can do an accent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not quite an accurate one. There's a little bit too much of Yorkshire in it, but you can't, you can't do the hag without doing a bit of a working class accent. That is fair. I could not voice the hag in quite this voice and have it read correctly. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that, um, I, I believe that. (laughs) I... (laughs) There are certain accents that do not go with certain characters or ways of being. Right. So the, the, the Hag of the Hills is, the, of course, the, the legend, the Cayach Ber, who's a Scottish goddess um, who I borrowed from generously. <laughs> and she is very much a woman of the mountains and the winters and the harsh weather. And I don't think that you can be that and be posh. Yeah. <laughs> no, that uh, um ha- having borrowed generously from uh the green lady myself mm. which listeners of the show will remember my reading on our April 2020 episode. I will one say I cannot fault you for borrowing. I will two say your reading did a lot better because I didn't even try to do an accent <laughs> on that. I was just struggling with my terrible sentences. Oh, none of that. None of that. None of that. We all got to learn. Absolutely. And I will now try uh, to stop doing the accent. <laughs> <laughs> and I will egg you on oh, mercilessly. Gosh, oh, gosh. So we were talking before the show about uh, what you were going to bring and I think you had suggested bringing Hagstone on and I, of course, immediately agreed because I've heard many a thing about it mm. and have never actually consumed it right. in any way, shape, or form. But uh, what you said about it right before the reading is something that I'd really like to dive into, which is this idea of this is a uh, your YA debut that never was mm-hmm. and was trunked. Yep. And typically the things that we have on the show are 
things that got trunked before they made it in front of an agent. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the process of trunking something after your agent has given it the best shot. Yeah, so Hackstone is the book which got me my agent um, in 2017. I sent this out. In fact, I sent out a bunch of Pitmad pictures on Twitter and my now agent, Kirsten Armada, um, liked one of those. And so I sent her the first 50 pages and she very quickly said, you know, can you send me the rest? Mm-hmm. Um, and we then worked on Hagstone pretty heavily. I think when she signed me, it was 72,000 words. And we did whew, three rounds of edits at least. Um, and then we went out on submission. Um, we mm-hmm. went on submission, I believe it was 10 or 11 editors across various houses And we got back um, a lot of feedback basically saying that it was well written and they liked the characters and setting, but it was just too quiet for the YA fantasy Mm. market. Um, Mm -hmm. So Hagstone is a fantasy um, in the vein of Holly Black's tithe with the fae and the unreal alongside our world. Um, and mm-hmm. a character trying to navigate this new um, interaction between everything she thought was true and the new things she's learning are true. But mm-hmm. it's also a lot more um, literary um, mm-hmm. than adventure. Right. There's a lot of, you know, interpersonal relationships, dealing with family, coming to terms with who you are, because it is a novel about the closet. And coming mm-hmm. of age as a queer youth, um, the main character, Becca, as we find out slowly, because she doesn't want to tell anybody, was thrown out by her parents for being gay. Um, and so, Oof. yeah, and so we got the feedback that, you know, um, this was not going to be an engaging sale. And so Kirsten Mm -hmm. and I sat down and worked on it a bit further and tried to figure out, you know, can we give it more of an adventure plot? Can we give Becca more of a quest structure? And figured out some edits that we thought would do that. And I did one round of edits and we went back to do it again. I'm like, at this point, with the edits before I went on sub and before I queried, I was up to Mm -hmm. my seventh round of edits on this book. And I just turned around and I said, Kirsten... If I do the edits that you want me to do and we sell this book, I'm not going to be able to do edits with my editor on top of that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's time to let it rest. Yeah. Wow, that's, that is a lot of edits. It's a lot of edits, particularly for a book. I think at one point I took every chapter, no, every scene in the third quartile of the book and reversed mm-hmm. their ordering. I picked this them. would have been one of your famous murder boards. Yeah, I like that one had lots of string everywhere because we needed to change when one particular event happened and when another did. And so it ended up being like, rewrite every scene to basically be the same, but happen in reverse order. <laughs> I think I threaded a new main character through the whole book in one of the earlier things, at which point Kirsten came back and was like, you realize that adding a character is not adding plot. Those are different <laughs> things, Macy. And I'm like, are they, though? <laughs> that 
I don't sounds fake to me. Yeah, I am notoriously um some people are plot forward. I am not. <laughs> <laughs> mood. Yep. Mood, mood, yep. mood. So I still have a great deal of affection for this. I'm still proud of what we sent out to editors. Um but mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of gonna sit in the back burner for a while and I will focus on other things and maybe it will come back to life down the road and maybe it won't. Yep, and either of those things is okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, that's... that's. Uh, I think that is the central message of this show, Distilled, is right. whether or not we do something with the things that we wrote and then trunked, that's still good. And I learned so much from doing it. Um, I learned so much about editing. Gosh. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, this is where I developed the murder board thing, right? Yeah. So, uh, and and I want to circle back on that a little bit, but just for point of comparison, how many edits at this point has Catalyst gone through as a a book? Oh, God. Um, This is very complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Asking the hard-hitting and difficult questions. Well, because I've written it three times, but it was a totally different book the other times, and so we're not counting Mm -hmm. those. Um, right. So Catalyst for the listeners is my current um, adult fantasy book that I'm working on. Right now it clocks in at 126,000 words. I rewrote about 70% of it from scratch since June last year. And before that I had done a round of edits on it. And before that I'd written it, but then like backtracked and probably lost about 50,000 words of it while backtracking which I guess isn't really mm-hmm. an edit round, but it still feels like it. So major rounds, I would say two plus two rounds of like polish. And I'm about to mm-hmm. go in on a third edit round, but this one should be quick because I just got feedback right. from my agent last week. Fantastic. Yes, I'm excited. We love to see it. Editing, people. Um, some people can write <laughs> clean books. I am not one of them. Yeah, I... I was thinking when you said that Hagstone went through seven rounds of edits, <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, I don't think my most edited short story has been through quite that many rounds. I think I've maybe clocked in at six rounds on one or two things, and I've I've definitely clocked in a, I wrote this, and then I went back and rewrote it, a couple of times on short stories because I found where the seed of the thing was and it was a different thing. Well, and I think that, I don't know, I would find it very hard to edit a short story seven times and not have turned it plastic. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I think with a novel, you're interweaving so many things that... um, there's just more to do without overworking the dough, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that is a uh, that is a good metaphor, Bront. <laughs> Love me a metaphor. Uh, among the many good baking metaphors for writing. <laughs> but it's true, you know. You know? You wanna... it, it can get wooden after a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that is something I've noticed. With my own short fiction mm. of, um, as I've, partly as I've just become more comfortable with trunking things. Sure. Because I've learned to become less precious with my work. But that if it's not working after 
five rounds of revisions and like everything is as good as I can make it, no more rounds of revisions are going to make any difference to it other than making it worse. Right. And I think that um, a lot of my attitude towards short stories comes from um, the fact that I started in poetry. And Mm -hmm. I wrote so many poems. Between the ages of like 15 and 21, I must have written 600 poems. Um, That is many. That is many. And the thing with poems is you write it and then you move on. Like most of the times Mm -hmm. I've not submitted. Like 98% of my poems I have never submitted anywhere. I have edited them very briefly for like single word choices I have not reshaped them or reformatted them or anything like that. They're just ideas. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I will use them as material to create something completely new out of them. But that's not editing. Right. So like the very first short story I ever sold to Cast of Wonders, um, A Cradle of Vines. Um, Mm -hmm. It's about a small girl who eats a berry from a magical plant and starts turning into that magical plant. And that Mm -hmm. is from a poem I wrote when I was 19, maybe. Um, And the story has nothing to do with the poem except that, you know, eat a plant and be caught through like a waterfall by the vines. Um, Mm -hmm. But I find the alchemy of different writers' approaches to reworking and reusing their imagery fascinating Mm -hmm. so that is the thing that i try to reframe for myself is i used to be very precious Mm -hmm. uh i started writing to submit when i was 18 Mm -hmm. uh and being an 18 year old boy person i thought that everything i wrote was great and being a, a sensitive mm. 18-year-old boy person, it was very hard for me to give up anything. Sure, 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 sure. And so I've definitely, you know, if I look back through my, my Abandoned Stories folder, I can see, you know, the first story that I ever submitted went through three or four rewrites and has been revisited three or four times because I still like some of the ideas mm-hmm. from it. And at this point, it's been probably five years since I last revisited any of those ideas because I just can't sure. anymore. Sure, sure, sure. But, you know, I one of the last stories that I have had out on in in heavy rotation has been something that I initially wrote, again... 10 years ago, Mm. and then that ran through a number of submissions, and then I realized, oh, that's not what this story is about. Sure, sure. But I can use, you know, I I was sitting in a reading at an MFA program, and there was a feather on somebody's, just like a little down feather, Mm -hmm. just sticking out of somebody's hat. And it was, you know, it was midwinter, in the mountains in North Carolina, so obviously it probably just came out of their down coat. But I was like, oh, yeah, no, but they're an angel. Like, that's just one of their feathers that's sticking out. And if I plucked it, then 
I would figure out that they were an angel because they'd get real mad at me. <laughs> and so the first one, the first round of that was like, I'm going to use this to explore, like, you know, relating to parents' issues. And then I was like, no, that's just going to be your boyfriend. <laughs> and, you know, that that second run through, I think... I still haven't sold, but I think is a much more satisfying story because I figured out what I actually needed to do with that. Right. I think for me, part of it is that I have the problem that I guess many writers envy. I have way too many ideas. And I'm not mm -hmm. just saying like idea. Like I have, I have more than a dozen story starters that I could sit down and keep writing. I have like at least three novels that I could start writing in a week if I needed to. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and so convincing myself to spend significant effort on a thing that is hard um, is a little bit of a non-starter, mm -hmm. right? Particularly for short fiction, because it's really hard to place. Um, mm -hmm. And for me, it takes about as long to write a piece of short fiction, um, five, six, seven thousand words, as it does to write 50,000 words of a novel. I do not have that problem. <laughs> I really do, and it's <laughs> aggravating. <laughs> yes. Oh. That is something, though, that, that the idea of, like, putting a thing down because it is hard, or not doing a thing because it, it is hard... Mm -hmm. That I, I find really interesting because, you know, one of the things I had to learn as uh, a new writer was how do I power through that? Sure. Sure. And, and I think that that's kind of, it's not so much that it's hard, it's that the cost-benefit analysis doesn't map out. So mm -hmm. I will bash my head up against a novel till I'm black and blue, but... That's because I know that my agent is waiting for me. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to convince myself that I should bash my head up against an uncooperative, stubborn short story yeah. when I know that even odds are no one will ever read it. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. very, very rarely spend more than an hour writing a poem. Like the one that's out in Uncanny, Saltwashed, that... I wrote over the course of a dinner that I was eating in a pub on my own <laughs> in the middle of the Orcas Islands. And it was just rattling around in my head. And so, fine, I will get out a notebook and scribble you down. And I spent maybe a half hour editing it afterwards. But those don't take effort for me. Mm -hmm. But short stories do, because people expect things to happen, which is rude of them. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And they expect it to have a satisfying conclusion. Extremely rude. I spent, so I had to write a short story earlier this year because um, mm -hmm. we kickstarted an anthology, which will be coming out in November, uh, called yes. Silk and Steel, a queer adventure uh, something something anthology. That's it. It's very good. Yes, I'm super excited. But I had to write a story. I had to have it done. Otherwise, mm -hmm. wh what am I doing? Is <laughs> it really easier for me to kickstart and get crowdfunding from 1,700 people than it is to sit down and write a story? Turns out, yes, but I did it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, big, big mood. 
but <laughs> I, I haven't done the kickstarting part of things, but I've definitely written a story like written a story because I had to. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the anthology that we were in together a couple of yes. years ago, uh, Skies of Wonder, Skies of Danger, which uh, the the story that I have in that anthology, A Step Out Into the Blue, is not the story that I wrote for that anthology right. initially. I heard, because, so the, the listeners, for context, um, this was a group of us got together on a Slack channel that we're in and decided, hey, we want to do a themed anthology. What if we did pirates? Or what if we did airships? Or what if we did wizards? What if we did airship pirate wizards? Yeah. And then you wrote a story that didn't have all three in it, right? I did not have airships right. in the story I wrote initially because I had, I had mafia, <laughs> I, I had uh, a magic mafia hunting down insect centaurs Amazing. and working with a computer wizard. Yes! And but I did not, did not have an airship in but it. But you can still sell that story? Yes. I can't, well, because it is actually, there were many problems <laughs> with it, but the main problem was everybody else had written a story that had all three. Right. And so I uh, I talked with my editor for that anthology, uh, John Apple, and he had said, you know, we can work on getting airships in. I have some ideas. Mm-hmm. You could put airships into this. We also have to work on the ending. And I was like, yeah, that sounds hard. Why don't I, <laughs> in two weeks, send you an entire new draft Amazing. of a different thing entirely? And so then I sent him some queer lady pirates stealing an airship and going to take it back to a socialism colony <laughs> on the surface of a... Uh, alternate ni- uh, 1890s Europe where all the cities are aloft now because there's megafauna. I think that I do really love hyper-specific anthologies for that purpose because it lets yes. you really flex the creativity of everyone involved. Um, so um, I did want to talk a little bit, I think, about Silk and Steel, if that's okay. Yes, I would love for that. So the idea between behind Silk and Steel initially was um, an illustration of a princess and a swordswoman who were clearly into each other. Um, <laughs> and so we broadened the theme a little bit and we said, hey, write us an adventure story that has one weapon-wielding woman and one who's like high femme. And we have mm-hmm. so many different types of takes on that theme. We have sci-fi, we have modern stuff we have uh dimension hopping ruritanian shenanigans from freya which is Mm -hmm. epistolary and hilarious Um, (laughs) and it was just great to see once you confine a story writer weirdly Mm -hmm. i find you get more creativity yes like if you just told someone write me a story with a swordswoman in it it could be anything, but it's kind of hard to get us started because it could be anything, right? Yes. Yeah. And if you must have airships and pirates and wizards. Yeah. And, and 
to get back to the idea of reusing mm, things, mm-hmm. that setting is that I ended up writing for and uh, getting published in that anthology mm-hmm. is something that I had been playing with in college for uh, in a completely different shape, but this the basic idea of oh somebody found rocks that can fly Ooh. and but they also cause megafauna amazing and so the solution is okay just put the cities in the air now nice yep yep and you know and that and that like that was something that i wrote a very bad story because i was a you know 20 something boy shaped person in college and rebelling hard against a professor who thought that genre was a bad word. Yep. yep. So I, I wrote that thing and, you know, then like sat on it. And I think we, my friends and I played a uh, role-playing game in that sort of setting and riffed on it for a while and then let it sit for mm-hmm. a decade. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I bring it back up and I'm like, oh, I know exactly what to do with this now. Well, I almost never reuse magic settings because I love improvising them. Mm -hmm. I just love improvising them. Um, And I believe my story for that anthology had feather witches and a molecular vibration-based magic system, which I absolutely did not put on the page. But I'm just like, I'm just going to like invent some stuff off the cuff. Um... Mm-hmm. I actually just finished the first short story I finished in maybe a year, uh, just in time to get it in for the Uncanny sub, and it has a color vampire in it, who Ooh. fuels magic by drinking color from things, which is fine until you realize that chlorophyll and chloroplasts need to be green, otherwise your plants <laughs> don't work. Whoops. <laughs> So let me get this straight. You, Jennifer Mace, wrote a story with fucky plant bullshit in it? It's mostly not about the plants. It's more about Vesuvius. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Who hasn't wonder why that would be on anybody's mind? Yeah, Pompeii is fun, okay? That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Definitely not in any way influenced by the mountains of ash in the air right now. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> what was it? Uh, the, 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 the sun was the color of bruised peach flesh. Ooh. Yeah, that was Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> like, ah, nervous laughter. Because it's true. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I'm, I, I, with the benefit of video... See that there appears to be a murder board directly behind you. Yep. <laughs> there sure is. And for, uh, I think that this is something you've, I know this is something you've discussed on Twitter, and I think this is something that's been discussed on Serpentcast at least tangentially before, but I wondered if we could have uh, possibly a small corner on the murder board theory of editing. (laughs) Sure. So um, there's a more in-depth discussion, which I did with RJ Theodore, um, Mm -hmm. which we can probably link listeners to as well. uh, And listeners, Hillary's small fluffy son is yelling at us right now. Yes. 
he sees something, probably a ghost. Probably a ghost. Um, as we have previously established, cats are good at that. So, yes, I am what is in polite society termed a discovery writer, um, mm-hmm. which means I invent shit. Um, and I generally do not know what is happening at the end or the middle of my book when I start it. If I know that, I don't want to write the book anymore because I'm bored. So mm-hmm. I will happily mumble along and come back with 135,000 words and someone will ask me what happens Macy and I'm like stuff there's a fake marriage um that's not a (laughs) plot Macy so the first thing that I have to do whenever I'm trying to turn a large lump of Scrivener file into a book is figure out what it has in it and Mm -hmm. for myself I think in chapters and I think in acts So what I normally do is I sit down and I write out two or three sentences for each chapter, what happens in it, and I cut those out and pin them to a board in acts. And I will then go through and colour code them based on the main plot threads, the ones that I intended Mm -hmm. and the ones that I didn't intend, um, (laughs) and try to see how the balance looks. Because if you are going to pin your ending on a particular theme or a particular arc, Mm -hmm. you really want that arc to be present in the first chapter. For example, right? There wants to be a balance. You don't want to lose it in the middle for a while, which I Mm -hmm. frequently do. Um, And so (laughs) that kind of helps me go through. And then once I've identified what's happening and where the strands are, um, you'll frequently see me making gestures like a sine curve when I talk about this. Um, Mm -hmm. Then I will go back and add next to it on my pinboard, um, little pieces of paper with edits tagged by the color of why I'm doing that edit. Um, and so mm-hmm. it's kind of like a design document for my edit, right? To talk tech. Right. Um, and once I have my brief, only then do I go back and actually make changes. Mm-hmm. Neat. It's fun. That is... So that is the backwards way of how I learned to write long fiction. Mm -hmm. A lot of people do this by doing this before they start writing. Yeah. I I tend to, again, think in terms of chapters and acts and lay everything out in a Google Sheet, because I love Google Mm -hmm. Sheets, and say, okay, for each chapter, what happens... Who happens in it, and and what do I, uh, like what what plot elements am I addressing within this, or what uh, what sub arcs am I addressing within this? I I cannot. If I do that, I can't write the book. Mm-hmm. I just feel confined and uninterested. Um, and you know, everybody's brain works differently. Um, yeah. So I I used to think I was a discovery writer. <laughs> And I discovery wrote my way through about 60,000 words of a very bad first novel and realized that it did not work for a variety of reasons Mm -hmm. and was also very problematic. Uh, And I still like the ideas behind it, and so someday I may revisit it, but that's, you know probably at least two or three years out at this point. Right. And I mean, this is something where, like, when you start making the transition towards 
trying to write things to send to agents, to send out on submission, you do have to standardize your process a little bit just so that the system can Mm -hmm. understand you. Yeah. So, like, I do have now enough of a pitch of the sequel to my current book, Catalyst, that if my agent feels we are ready to go on submission, she will have something to show editors as to what might happen in the series next, which is not mm-hmm. how I would prefer to work. But right. it's, like, it's a compromise, right? Um, yeah. But I think that some of my discoveriness is informed by the fact that I started in on long fiction by doing NaNoWriMo. Mm-hmm. So I came out of high Excellent. school where I wrote, you know, a poem every other day, quietly alone in my room, and I hit college, mm-hmm. and I decided I'm going to go really wild with college and my freedom, and immediately wrote a book. <laughs> <laughs> no one can stop me from staying to up till three in the morning and not eating properly. Yes. I mean, you know, big college mood. Right. Um, and so NaNoWriMo does, to a degree encourage discovery writing just because you want to be moving fast um Mm -hmm. but i did find that that really worked for me yeah and you know it is one of the things that i struggle with but also find really helpful for NaNoWriMo is setting having a a distinct goal of if you are going to win (laughs) NaNoWriMo you have to write 1667 words every day yep at least. And if you do that, you get to enter in your numbers and you have a graph that steadily ticks upwards and you have statistics and all sorts of lovely things. But also, it gives you momentum. It does. And it lets you live in the minds of your characters and in the world of your book in a way that I find is really important when I'm writing long form Um I need to be writing every day. Um, and that's mm-hmm. just me. You know, you, nobody has to write every day. Um, but I right. will generally write for a month and then take a break. Um, but I did NaNoWriMo um, or Camp Nano every year from 2008 until last year, missing one in the middle. And I won every one of them. Whew. It just works for me. That- uh and some of that is, you know, privilege. Yeah. I don't have kids. I don't have parents I have to look after. I didn't have to work through college. Um, mm-hmm. But I really like making the graph look smooth. And that's very motivating yes. for me. And I believe we're going up just before NaNoWriMo starts, correct? Yes, we are. So, you know. Uh, so, on that theme, uh-huh. uh, I... You know, one of the many strange sounds that happens in this room is sometimes it's almost like somebody's rubbing something against several bass piano strings, and then there's a blue box in the corner. And so I'm wondering (laughs) if we can step into this time machine for a minute and go back and uh, if there's things now that you could tell first-time NaNoWriMo Macy that you have learned. Gosh. Um, so we need to go back to November 6th, November 8th, 2008, to the very sticky basement floor of the Student (laughs) Union at Edinburgh University, TV at Row, where baby Macy was sitting with her laptop open on her knees, 
crouched, too nervous to sit on the floor, at two <laughs> in the morning, amidst a completely crowded clubbing floor. Gross. As trying to type her chapter because she was overdue on word count, as everybody watched the Obama election on the overhead screens. Oof. Oh yeah, 2008. Yes. So that was my first year at college. It was my first NaNoWriMo. And that was when I sat down there and I think figured out the thing that Merck was talking about the other year, which was that was when I kicked aside my lit fic planned outline and said, I'm going to write weird fey changeling bullshit <laughs> because write your joy. What would I tell her? Um, Try editing and finishing things. Uh, honestly, when I was starting out, and I don't think this was a bad thing necessarily, but mm-hmm. I treated writing as an RPG. Mm-hmm. I was writing because I wanted to have adventures. I just wanted to go places with my characters. I have an entire complete middle grade novel about a ninth century Irish child who gets yeeted into fairyland that I wrote <laughs> purely because I wanted to write lots of wandering around in forests. I really felt like some nature that year because I was trapped in the Bay Area and feeling weird about having emigrated. And so I just wrote forests a bunch, which is great fun if that's what you're in it for. But if you want to actually sell things, publish things, complete things, it -hmm. is all well and good writing the first 50,000 words of a novel once a year. But it is not writing a book. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's, I think, what I would tell myself is pick a unit and finish it. Mm -hmm. Even if that unit is not a full novel yet, even if that unit is a kid's book so you can fit it inside 50,000, even if it's a novella, learn how to write endings. Because the earlier you learn that, the earlier you will learn how to seed the beginnings. And it's funny how much flows from that connection. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, those are very good words of wisdom, and I tricked you into them. <laughs> on on uh, listeners, a, a peek behind the curtain for a second. Uh, when I invite somebody on, I send them a questionnaire, <laughs> and it has a number of questions in it. And one of them is, do you have any words of wisdom you want to share at the end of the show? And Macy has a dot point here that just says, heck knows. <laughs> And so whenever I get a response like that, I think, yes, I can make them be wise. (laughs) You just wait. Uh, Um, So, yes, endings. Learn to write endings. That is such a... And and learn how to connect the ending to the beginning. Um, There's a series of Brandon Sanderson lectures up on YouTube at the moment, and I really enjoy how he talks about promises and payoffs. Mm -hmm. He structures his, like, um, shape of a novel from you start with a series of promises, they make progress, and then they hit payoffs. And Mm -hmm. I think that that is something that a lot of us do by instinct. Um, But it is always a good idea to do it by instinct and then go back and take a look at what you did. Mm -hmm. Because I think that for me, that's another big part of being a professional writer 
is learning to do stuff on purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's... That's where I started appreciating my high school English classes, <laughs> where I was told to look at things and write in books, which I never, ever did, because I do not like to write in books. Sure. But the thing that my teachers would always say is look at what they are doing right. look at what whatever unit of book you are having to look over for whatever prescribed set of themes are you are being told to pick out find those and as much as i went kicking and screaming <laughs> through all of high school and never ever wrote in any of my books except doodling in the books that I hated. <laughs> I learned to, you know, pick up an anthology, pick up a novel, pick up anything, and start to see, oh, they did a thing. Mm. And now I am going to flip back three pages and figure out how they did mm. that thing. I think that's something that I learned really late. Because if you asked me for my identity as a subject in high school. I'm a mm -hmm. mathematician. Um, I dropped English the second we were allowed to. And the next <laughs> time I took an English class was when I went to Viable Paradise. Mm -hmm. So I have never learned how to write or how to critique, which is hilarious looking at Be the Serpent. <laughs> Which is a podcast of extremely oh, deep literary merit. <laughs> but it's funny to me. I think you don't need to have the fancy classes, um, the MFAs, the Clarion, the Viable Paradise, any of the rest of it. Because if I hadn't already learned how to do this, I wouldn't have gotten to Viable Paradise. They didn't teach mm -hmm. me it. Um, you can apply your day-to-day -day common sense um, critical thinking skills to art that is allowed mm -hmm. it is not I, mean, I don't know I, I have a lot of opinions about how it feels more and more these days like you have to love something forever or if you critique it you hate it I'm like no I I'm not gonna waste my energy critiquing things that I hate I critique things I love mm -hmm. yes yes and that you know that is uh I I tend to have a lot of feelings on the internet about these things because the internet is not good at nuance. The internet is not good at nuance. And also, to, to be clear, we are very careful not to critique in the this-is-how-you-improve-it manner on Be the Serpent either. Mm -hmm. We do comparisons, but we do not critique because fan authors have not asked for that and it's rude to do it. Right. Yes. Yes. And that is something that is something that is valuable to know how to do both of mm -hmm. those things and when to apply either of them. Right. You know, I've I have committed some fanfics and I will, you know, ring up a friend, ring up what am I? How old am I? I will slack somebody and be like, hey, I wrote this fanfic. Would you mind looking over right. it? And they will critique it yep. and tell me where the things work and yep. where they don't and where the emotions are happening and if they are happening in the right place. 
And that's great. And then I post it on AO3. And anybody who tells me anything about it other than I love this and please write more of it, I'm just going to roundly ignore. Because that is not the space for that. That is, I have published this thing. Right, this one is done. And there's some space to learn from things that people like and dislike. Um, But I, and I'm less concerned about doing this on AO3 if it's done respectfully and gently and the author hasn't explicitly asked you not to. But I am Mm -hmm. very much aware that Be the Serpent is sitting in a place of power. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we, we have Hugo nominations. We have 800 first day downloads. We are not peers and it would be punching down. Um, and besides, we bring fanfic specifically onto the podcast because we love it, right? We yes. don't pick something that we want to tear apart. Yeah. That, and that is, you know, I think that's something very important is to know, like, I personally love terrible movies. Mm, right. And, you know, it's, it is fun to, like, do a riff tracks of a movie with your friends, but if I were, you know, a serious movie reviewer, right. I would not be, or, or you know, a serious, serious visual media person, I would not be doing that same thing. Well, and I also think the power differential with visual media, because it's so expensive to produce and is so privileged once it has been created and released, is a little bit different it obviously depends um on the Mm -hmm. piece of media but i'm thinking for example about the kindness of reviewers to short fiction even in professional venues uh for example i really Mm -hmm. admire charles pacer's quick sip reviews for always being kind and generous to the stories that he reviews as opposed to stuff like you know um rocket stank rank um and the rest <laughs> um who don't always take the time to attempt to engage with the stories where they are mm-hmm. um and i think that when we're looking at stuff like on tales from the trunk that authors have realized doesn't work because basically what you get if it's trunked it's probably there because for some reason or another, it doesn't work. That's the sort yep. of thing that we pick apart ourselves for lessons. But I could not imagine having a stranger do that to my work. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yes. Yes. And that is... I mean, we are at, at the risk of being... Uh, at the risk of being earnest... Yeah. Uh, that is the reason that we do this show, mm-hmm. is to, you know, to expose that to other people, but to say, you know, I can learn things from my own work. Right. I can learn things from other people's work, but this is a place where this is the space to do this in this specific way. Right. Right. That, you know, I asked you on, and you said, I would like to bring this story on and I said that's great and you know we talk about here are the talking points for Mm -hmm. it here are the the jumping off points for it and you know I'm not going to say like oh you know that was a clumsily executed sentence in the middle of that 
I will say that for my own self if I am reading something. Right. But my job as the host here is you bring something on, you are being vulnerable in a way, and my job is to appreciate what has been brought on. Um, And, you know, I think that that's that's really important and it's really... it, It feels aligned with what you and... Alex and Freya do on Serpentcast. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, so with that, I realize that we are running over time slightly, but I just... It's 2020. Why not run a bit over yeah. on a podcast? I would love for you to give us uh, a quick plug. We've already had a plug for uh, Silk and Steel, mm-hmm. which is coming out on a date in November? Yes. So we are now just, it's now the 13th of September and we are, we have our copy edits back and we're turning those around and next we go to typesetting and then we go to trying to make the cover and we believe it probable that we will have an ebook for sale at least by the end of November and we will see how printing works because it's been a year. Uh, it has been quite a it's year. It's been quite a year, but you know, I'm... So impressed with all of our writers for the amazing stories they have delivered us and the Herculean editorial efforts of our (laughs) editorial chief, Janine Southard, and of Django Wexler's assistance on running all of the money and making sure we didn't, you know, buy ourselves too many pizzas and bankrupt the whole shindig. Uh, Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's been a ride. But yes, that should be available for pre-order as the episode goes up, and we hope that it will ship by the end of November. So writers, y'all are wrapping up your NaNoWriMo's, right? Excellent. A good reward. Indeed. It's full of stabby and slashy and shooty lesbians. Yes. And bisexual women and envies. Yes. And if you don't like those things, we don't want you listening to this show. (laughs) Yeah, sometimes you're in the mood for one thing or another. It's all fine. Certainly. If you are bigoted against those things, we don't want you listening to the show. Nobody is required to read short fiction. Yes. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. According to my secret serpent cast schedule, um, (laughs) you... Good siblings. Yes. Um, This is required because... You should be looking forward, Hillary's listeners, to the episode 72 Halloween episode on October 21st of Be the Serpent, which will be about vampires. Oh, excellent. Super exciting. I'm very excited for that. Yes. Um, featuring Kellen Sparrow's small changes over long periods of time. Oh, I fucking love that right? story. So yes, I have a podcast. It's fun. There's lots of yelling. Um, it's not work safe. It is not work safe. <laughs> uh, small changes over long periods of time. Very not work safe. Yep. This, this podcast usually contains swearing. And I make sure to call that out at the beginning of any episode where it does. Mm-hmm. Be the serpent always, always contains, contains swearing. Always contains, yes. Our our tagline is a dick joke, so you know, you got to start as you mean to go on. <laughs> <laughs> you had noticed that, right? I had, of course I had noticed <laughs> that. I've been listening 
practically since the beginning well, of the not show. Not everybody realizes that deep literary merit is a <laughs> euphemism. <laughs> I mean, so I we started listening to Serpent Cast about the same time we started listening to Binge Mode when they were doing their Harry Potter deep dive. Hey. And uh, at the beginning of every episode, they mention the uh, wide canon <laughs> of Harry Potter. Hey. So I was, I was already in that space when I yeah. entered into the uh, Serpent Cast land. And uh, I have... I mean, I never left that space. Yep, yep. Let's be it's real fair. here. It's fair. But anyway, that should be there. And there will be a sports ball episode at some point um and all sorts of fun things fantastic i can i'm 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 guessing that there's going to be some sort of uh haku thick on that one but i can't say for sure certainly there are lots and lots of sports anime there are so many sports animes uh so darling listeners <laughs> be sure to tune in fortnightly on Wednesdays to Be the Serpent, a podcast of extremely, extremely deep literary merit. And keep an eye out for pre-orders for Silk and Steel, which will be out towards the end of November. And and good luck on your NaNoWriMo. Indeed, good luck. You can find all of these things and more at English Mace on Twitter, and www.englishmace.com. Fantastic. Because <laughs> I normally have to, after we finish recording, I have to say, oh shit, I forgot to do the promo spot. Can we go back and do the promo spot and then I'll move it around in edits? But Hillary, this is an opportunity <laughs> for me to use my forbidden sexy radio voice. <laughs> Alex has uh, explicitly forbade me from using that in the intro and outro. Well, <laughs> this isn't Alex's show. This is my show. There we go, then. And, yeah. Macy, thank you so, so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute well, joy. Well, thank you for having me. This has been so much fun. Listeners, join us again in November when our guest will be John Wiswell. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. Our theme music is Paper Wings by Ryan Boyd. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject. Don't self-reject.